good morning, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. Um, it's a bit of a challenging passage we've got this morning. How about I ask for God's help as we look at the, the Word together. Lord God, we thank you for your Word. And we pray this morning as uh, we come to this part of Matthew and we see Jesus uh, respond uh, in a slightly unusual way that we're not usually expecting, that um, yeah, you would show us what it is you have to say for us, to us from this, that you would convict our hearts, that you would humble us, and that you would do your work in our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I'm not sure if you were woken by the earthquake that um, happened a couple of nights ago. Uh, it's probably a test of how deep a sleeper you are, whether it felt like a gentle cradle rock, uh, or if you were awake and alert for the rest of the day. Uh, we were both woken. Um, the kids thankfully slept through. But it's, it's hard to think of anything more unsettling than an earthquake. I mean, and they're unsettling because something that's not supposed to move is moving. I mean, the ground, it's not meant to move, right? I've been living the last 20 or so years in Australia and the ground doesn't move there. Uh, and, and we talk about things like being grounded, uh, setting your feet on solid ground, uh, if, if you want to secure a building, what do you do with the foundations? You dig them deep into the bedrock, the ground that doesn't move, right? And so, when just out of the blue, the ground starts shaking, well, it's unsettling, isn't it? Um, despite living in Australia at the time, Claire and I were actually in Christchurch for the first earthquake that happened in September 2010. Uh, we'd, we'd actually just got engaged on a road trip around New Zealand, and we were just getting out of the taxi uh, to get back on our flight back to Sydney. And the earthquake struck at 4.35 in the morning. And uh, I remember walking over some slightly raised um, platforms that they put over roadworks that they were doing. And I thought, these are really unstable. Like, this is <laughs> really unsafe. And then I looked ahead at the airport terminal. There may be a slide that comes up of that, but no, I didn't get to the computer. But the glass on the terminal was about 20 metres tall and it was doing these ones. And then people start rushing out of the building and I grabbed my fiancé and we stood there just hoping the car park building wouldn't collapse around us. But perhaps even more unsettling than the actual earthquake, I, I personally kind of found it a bit exciting. Um, I don't know if that's a bit wrong, but uh, the thing that was more unsettling were the aftershocks that happened in the days after, as the airport was closed and we had to wait for them to do their checks. Every hour or so, there'd be another aftershock. And you, you kind of grew to expect them, but you never grew used to them. See, earthquakes, they're unsettling. And unsettling might be a word that we'd use to describe this next part of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, if you've just joined us at church recently, our usual way of preaching is that we work through books of the Bible. Uh, and one of the reasons we do that is because sometimes there are tricky passages that if we just chose the passages week to week, what we wanted to preach on, we might skip over difficult parts. Uh, but we want to understand what God is saying to us in all of His Word. 
And at the moment, we're working through Matthew, which is one of the biographies of Jesus. And in the first part of our passage today, this interaction with the Canaanite woman, we see a side of Jesus that's unsettling. See, if anyone can be as dependable as solid rock, surely it's Jesus. The Pharisees throw their questions to test him, and he's always got that clever response, asking a question back to them, putting them in their place. And people come to him and ask for his help, and his response, the the response we always expect, well, is that he helps them. Without hesitation. But have a look in verse 21. It's helpful to have um, your Bibles open in front of you. Um, Chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. Now, I can't think of another situation in the Bible where someone comes to Jesus for mercy and he effectively ignores them. This, this woman is desperate. She's crying out for mercy for her daughter. Her daughter who's suffering terribly at the hands of some demonic attack. Jesus could heal her with a word. But instead he doesn't even offer a word. He completely ignores her. It's unsettling, isn't it? This isn't the Jesus I thought I knew. What happened to this rock of compassion and mercy? And then when Jesus tells us the reason for his silence... Well, it's just as unsettling, isn't it? Look in verse 23 again. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The disciples are like, If you're not going to heal her, Jesus, can you just get rid of her? Because she's really annoying, carrying on like that. And Jesus gives the reason. He's ignoring her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. See, there's there's something that makes this woman different from most other people who come to Jesus for help. It's that she's not a Jew. She's a foreigner. And not just any foreigner, she's a Canaanite. And the Canaanite was Israel's longest and greatest enemies. They'd been at war with Israel for centuries. They'd, They'd led them astray to follow other gods. The Jews didn't even speak to these people. And Jesus is no exception. He doesn't speak to her either. At least not straight away. So what do we make of this? Is Jesus buying into some kind of endemic racism? Well, what Jesus says next is even more unsettling. Look in verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. A woman comes to him, begging for mercy for her suffering daughter. Jesus starts off ignoring her. Then he attempts to avoid the situation. And when he finally addresses the woman, he pretty much calls her a dog. The lost sheep of Israel, their children, you aren't worthy of my help. You're a foreigner, a Canaanite, a dog. He downright rejects her request with a pretty offensive and potentially racist comment. And to top it all off, the Jesus who's usually so decisive, such a rock, so strong in his convictions and actions, well, he does a complete backflip and changes his mind and, and heals the daughter. 
Look in verse 25, the woman responds, Yes, it is, Lord. She said, Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus is so struck by this response that he changes his mind and gives her what, he, what she's asking for. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So what's going on here? Are we seeing a different side of Jesus? We're seeing such a different Jesus to that quick-witted, decisive, compassionate Jesus that we normally see in the Gospels. What do we make of it? It's unsettling, isn't it? What do we make of it? Well, there's so much we can learn from this interaction. Uh, we'll spend most of our time looking at Jesus and the Canaanite woman. We'll also touch on the second story we read about the feeding of the 4,000 as it relates to what's going on here. But I want to look at this story from three perspectives. Um, if you're taking notes, uh, which might be good, I find when you're watching a live stream, it's much easier to be distracted. Um, so grab a, a bit of paper or something. Um, there's three perspectives. The mission of Jesus. Um, if you've got an outline here as well, you'll see the um, The faith of the woman. So the mission of Jesus, the faith of the woman, and the compassion of Jesus. Um, and my hope is we look at this count carefully. Through these three lenses, the mission of Jesus, the faith of the woman, and the compassion of Jesus. Um, what initially is unsettling and unusual will actually show us a clearer picture of who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. Um, so firstly, to understand what's happening here, we need to understand the mission of Jesus. Uh, and Jesus tells us his mission there in verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You see, Jesus' mission was to come as this promised Messiah, a promised king for the people of Israel. The one that the prophets foretold would be sent by God to restore the kingdom of Israel. This one who would heal the lame and open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and the mouths of the mute, which is exactly what we see Jesus doing in the next passage, right? His mission was to do that for the people of Israel. Now, you and I are living proof, unless you're from Israel and a Jewish person by origin, uh, we're living proof that Jesus' mission didn't end with Israel. Uh, and there are hints even through Jesus' earthly ministry that this was the plan, the long-term plan, um, that while he was only sent to the lost people of Israel, when the time was right, this ministry would overflow to the nations. You see that even in the Old Testament with the promises to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through him. But it's not till after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, when he rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit on the nations, and sends out his disciples with the good news for all nations, even the Canaanites. But in his earthly ministry, Jesus, his mission is to bring the back the lost sheep of Israel. Which he does ultimately in his death and resurrection, but in everything that leads to that. And so for Jesus to go and preach the good news to the Gentiles and perform miracles among them, well, that would be putting the cart before the horse. That time will come, but that time is not now. Now is the time for Jesus to work among the lost sheep of Israel. And so I think Jesus is using this moment, this 
interaction with this Canaanite woman to teach his disciples and us about the priority of the people of Israel in God's plans to save the world. And he helps us understand what he's doing when he calls this woman a dog. As offensive as it sounds, I don't think Jesus is calling her what we think we hear when we hear that term. It sounds really derogatory, doesn't it? Um, we hear dog and we hear Jesus calling her a scumbag. But, but Jesus isn't making a value judgment on her and her people. Because you're not a Jew, you're some filthy dog. No, he's illustrating here a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in terms of who has access to God's table. Do you see the comparison between children and dogs? You see, Israel were God's chosen people. And they weren't chosen because they were somehow more worthy or more valuable than other people. But because God chose them, because He had set them apart, they had a privileged place at God's table. And the Gentiles don't share that same privilege. Um, dogs are unclean animals to the Jews. And so he's not using it as an insult. He's not calling her a scumbag. He's not being racist. He's saying that now is the time to prioritize Israel. And the other nations don't share in those promises at the moment. But as we'll see, Jesus' mission to the lost sheep of Israel, it's only part of the story. I think we actually see here a dilemma for Jesus. There's this tension between his mission to Israel and his compassion. But before we get there, there's much we can learn from the faith of the Canaanite woman. So that's our second lens, the great faith of the woman. Consider what this woman thinks of Jesus. Firstly, she recognises that he can help her daughter. She comes to him for help. And she doesn't let up. She keeps shouting and, and pleading for his help. Secondly, she realises Jesus' kingship. She gives him titles that a Canaanite would not be expected to understand. She calls him Lord and Son of David. By these titles, she's acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel. And thirdly, she kneels before him. Or more literally, she worships him. Um, it's the same word in the original language as what the disciples do in 1433, just before, when they when worship Jesus after Peter walks on the water with Jesus. Now these three, three amazing things that this woman does, they indicate a great faith, great trust in Jesus. But what leads Jesus to declare that she has such great faith? Well, it's how she responds to being called a dog. Look again in verse 26. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. See, not only does she understand Jesus' parable of bread and dogs without needing further explanation, but she accepts what it's saying about her. She accepts that she's just a dog compared to the people of Israel. She accepts that she's a Gentile, unworthy of the bread of life of the Messiah. Yet she's so determined, so insightful, so faithful. Even considering herself a dog, she sees 
a glimmer of hope that still receiving something from Jesus, even a crumb of his power, might heal her daughter. And so Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and her, her, her daughter is healed at that moment. It's an incredible response, isn't it, from a woman who has not grown up in the Jewish faith. It's almost prophetic in this description of how God's plan to save the world, first from the people of Israel, will overflow to the nations. And it's incredible when you compare it to the faith of the disciples, who despite their Jewish upbringing, despite walking with Jesus, despite Him explaining the details of His parables to them, they're still so slow to learn, aren't they? So slow to trust. And we see that especially in the feeding of the 4,000. Did it sound a bit like deja vu if you've been with us the last few weeks? Well, it is because days before, the disciples have just witnessed Jesus feed 5,000. With five loaves and two fish. And faced with the same problem here, they just don't get it, do they? It's, it's pretty much an identical situation. Once again, there's a huge hungry crowd in the desert, far from food. And if anything, this is easier to pull off than the last miracle because it's a slightly smaller crowd and they have a little bit more food. They've got two extra loaves and a few fish, not just two fish. But still they ask in verse 33, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? They just don't get it, do they? Jesus, the bread of life, is right there. They've seen him produce mountains of bread from a few small loaves. They still haven't joined the dots. Even in the next chapter, Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And they still don't get it. They think he's talking about the fact they didn't bring any bread with them. And I was telling that these Jewish men who walked with Jesus, who grew up with all the Jewish teachings, they have less faith, less insight than an outsider, a Gentile who meets him once. It's a good warning for us who grew up hearing the teachings of Jesus, isn't it? And I think it, it makes us realise that even if we'd been with Jesus and walked with Him, it doesn't mean we'd have a clearer picture. What would you have done in the Canaanite woman's situation? Would you have responded with great faith? I think for most of us, if we would come to Jesus for help, for one of our children, only to have him call us a dog, well, most of us would pack up and leave, right? Cancel Jesus. He just called me a dog. He's a racist. He's elitist. He's looking down on me. This one terrible thing he said, it undoes all the good things he ever did or could ever do from this point on. And I think some people read passages like this. And they go, there you see, the Bible's outdated. Jesus was hailed as the superior moral being, but now we can see the whole system is racist and discriminatory. We know better these days. We know better than Jesus in the Bible. Now you can kind of see their point in some ways, but I wonder if maybe part of the offence, part of our offence at Jesus' words here comes from a sense of entitlement. How dare he call her a dog? She deserves more respect than that. She's a precious human being that God created. But what does 
being a human actually entitle us to before Jesus? Do we have a right to come to the God of the universe and demand that He treat us as one of His children? It is true, humans are precious. We are made in the image of God. No matter what our race or religion, we are God's offspring, the crowning glory of His creation. So we might have the right to be called God's children if only we treated God as our Father, as He deserves to be treated as our Creator and our Heavenly Father, with obedience and reverence, love and respect. See, if it's anyone who's entitled to something, surely it's God, to whom we owe everything. And yet, if it's one person who's been disrespected, surely it's God, who we so often ignore or disobey or replace with things that we find more desirable or more important. Things that He made and He gave to us. We worship created things rather than the Creator. See, given how we've treated Him, Jesus doesn't owe us anything. And yet, rather than sitting in heaven, shaking His fist at the human race for their lack of respect, because of His amazing love, His abounding mercy, His astonishing grace, His indescribable patience, He emptied Himself of any entitlement, and He humbled Himself and became a man. Trudging through the sinful world for 33 years and then enduring the cross, a painful, God-forsaken and shameful death. And he did all of that, that we might be saved. I think we love to think that we were so precious that Jesus came to die for us. I think some of my kids' Bibles actually teach that. But Jesus didn't die for us because... We were so precious. He died to make us precious. We were His enemies. We were cut off from His presence. And cut off by our own choosing. By our rejection of Him. And yet by dying for us. Jesus gives us the chance to become the children of God. To be forgiven. To be restored in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. To be adopted as his children. See, if we recognize just how unworthy we are to be called God's children, if we put aside our sense of entitlement and realize just how little we deserve to sit at God's table, then perhaps the idea that we are as unworthy as dogs at the table of our master, it's not so far-fetched, is it? Perhaps we would happily receive whatever it is He has to offer us. And yet He offers us so much more than crumbs, right? Because of His incredible love, His incredible compassion, He offers us what we don't deserve, forgiveness, adoption, eternal life. And He offers it to us freely. He hasn't hidden it away He's shown it to us clearly in His Word, time and time again. 
And he's graciously brought every person listening here today to hear this good news of his mercy and love for sinners like you and me. So rather than be entitled, thinking God owes us something, let's be grateful that his compassion has led him to give us far more than we deserve. Which brings us to the third perspective to look at this text as we finish. The compassion of Jesus. See, it's easy to get it's easy to get distracted by the unexpected and controversial things that Jesus says and does here. But we mustn't just look at controversial statements in isolation. You have to look at the context. But the context is not just what came before, but it's how the story ends. We can often miss it. See, in the end, this is a story of Jesus' compassion. As Jesus himself says, he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But he puts that principle aside here for the sake of his compassion. And in his compassion, he doesn't send her away. See, at first glance, this doesn't look like the Jesus we thought we knew. But when we see how it ends, we see this is still that same Jesus, full of compassion and mercy. The same Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The same Jesus who goes to the cross to die for his enemies. See, we don't know Jesus' heart as he says these words. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. We don't know his body language, his tone of voice. I wonder if perhaps there's a, a bit of playful banter in his tone and a cheeky smile on his face, knowing that he was always going to help her. But what we do know is that Jesus isn't being spiteful or bitter or resentful of this woman. Whatever he's doing here, he is doing as the pure, sinless, and compassionate Son of God. As I've been thinking about it, I think partly what he's doing as he starts out ignoring her and then shows reluctance, and he's drawing out her faith for us and his disciples to see. You can just imagine that the disciples and the Jewish readers of the, the original audience of Matthew's Gospel. They're kind of high-fiving Jesus. Yeah, you called her a dog, you put her in her place. But then they stand ashamed as he grants her request and praises her for her great faith. Something they lack. Whatever he's doing, what we can see clearly on display is Jesus' compassion. And we see Jesus' compassion for the crowds as well in the next story, don't we? He, he spent days healing and and teaching these crowds. And in their dedication to him, they've, they've gone days without food. But he doesn't send them, so he doesn't want to send them away empty. He cares for their physical needs by miraculously feeding them. They all ate and were satisfied. See, rather than put his foot down and see his mission to Israel as absolute and without flexibility, Jesus chooses compassion. He lets compassion trump his mission. I wonder whether we miss opportunities 
to show compassion because we're so focused on our mission, so focused on the task at hand. We can be so busy trying to do whatever we think it is that God has called us to do that we don't actually have time to slow down and be inconvenienced by someone in need. We're rushing around and in the process we're missing opportunities to show compassion that are right in front of us. I often find myself standing in line at the supermarket frustrated about how slow the checkout person is as she's scanning items. I should have gone to the the computerised aisle, the self-serve lane. I wonder if you can relate to that. And often I'm thinking, come on lady, I'm going to be late to set up for church. How ironic is that? What kind of witness is that? As one of Jesus' children. As a follower of Jesus. That we'd be more concerned about what we're doing than how we're treating someone. Even in our minds. How far is that from the attitude and compassion of Jesus? How much more would you like to be like Him? Or like the woman of great faith? Should we pray that God would make us like that? Let's pray together. Father God, we are not worthy to be called your children. Even though you gave us life and breath and everything we have, so often we ignore you. We replace you with other things. We forget you exist. Or we outright disobey you. And we are sorry, Lord. We thank you that despite our unworthiness, Jesus, who is worthy of everything, humbled himself to the cross that we might become your children. How great is your love that we might be called the children of God. And so we pray that this truth would not just sit as a thing outside of us, but that would convict us and change us that would shape us to trust in this Jesus and to be so shaped by his love and his compassion that this would overflow in our lives in the way we think about and the way we speak and the way we treat others. Lord, please teach us these great truths today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.